Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 00054 of The Mission. Uh, The Mission is a show that explores issues confronting people at the wrong end of social justice in this country, and in particular, the challenges confronting First Nations people. My name is Daniel James. I will be your host this evening. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the people of the Wurundjeri, the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And once again, I'm broadcasting from Radio City Docklands as we all continue to take the precautions that are needed to prevent a second wave of COVID-19 from sweeping through the countryside. As you probably know by now, um, restrictions are about to be lifted in just under five hours from now. This means we can go and have visitors in our homes. We can go visiting other people in their homes in groups of five or under. We can catch up with people in groups of 10 or under outside, if um, you so desire. If you have 10 friends, if you have five friends, I've got to work on that over the next couple of weeks. Schools will begin to ramp up again later this month. Retail is reopening, with many stores have already opened, as we saw in crammed out consumer centres over the weekend in Chatston and High Point. Uh, my fear, of course, is that uh, people out there think that the pandemic is actually over. Um, And, you know, just through personal observations, I've I've noticed that uh, people seem to have become increasingly lax in terms of social distancing efforts. And the last thing is that, you know, we need to start doing and being more diligent about things as um, as we actually reconnect. Because remember, there is no vaccine or proven effective treatment for this thing. The jury is still out well and truly on the impacts of children uh, and the long-term health impacts of those who have contracted the virus. So as restrictions ease, it's now more important than ever that we uh, maintain good hygiene, washing of hands regularly for at least 20 seconds, making sure we work up a good lather when we do that, coughing or sneezing into our elbows, unlike the treasurer. Um, We need to make sure that, uh, you know, you don't touch your face too often, if you want to go to the next step, make sure that you wipe down goods that you bring into the home. Who knows whether they've got the rona or not? Because there would be nothing more depressing than getting a taste of freedom, of independence, and then having it all ripped away as society is placed into an even harder lockdown if this virus gets away from us during the winter months, during the flu months, during the months where uh, you know cold and flu season is, is most rife. And so who knows whether that means you know, the, the virus itself will be more rife. So um, it's it's going to be very detrimental to our social and emotional well-being if we don't take all the necessary precautions. The government has set the parameters for us. Now it's up to our individual responsibility to make sure that we do the right thing and protect ourselves, but just as importantly, if not more importantly, protect the most vulnerable in society. It would also mean that we wouldn't, um, you know, we would have the potential for months to put up with the, you know, if we don't do the right thing, we would have to put up with the whining and whinging of golfers who can't go out and play shit golf with their mates. 
And um, I'm not referring to some sort of trumped up prick that's not you're not too far from where I am right now. But you know, I wouldn't wish having to put up with their baby screams on anyone for uh, for another couple of months. So wash your hands, do the right thing, social distance, don't flaunt the rules. Please, please, I beg you. Now, on tonight's show, I'll be yarning with um, uh, Mayo Drees, who I was supposed to have on the show last week, but there was a communication breakdown. So she'll be on the show tonight. She co-authored uh, for the latest edition of the Griffith Review, um, a piece entitled Listening to Elders, Wisdom, Knowledge, Institutions and the Need for Change. So we'll explore those issues surrounding that concept with with Maya when we get her on um, not too long for now. And in the second half of the show, I'll have a conversation with Michael Bell. Michael is the Indigenous Liaison Officer with the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. Uh, There is such a rich history of Aboriginal men and women who have served their country over time. Um, If you were listening last week and you didn't fall asleep, you would have uh, listened to a piece I wrote about my uh, great-great-grandfather, Percy Pepper, who served in World War One. So we'll have a conversation about, you know, that, you know, we'll have a conversation about Michael's role and whatever else takes our fancy. So as per usual, the best way to contact me during the show is via Twitter. My handle is at Mr. DT James. And, um, you know, settle in. Coming to you again from Radio City Docklands, Triple R is doing the right thing. We'll be here come what may. Triple R. To our first guest this evening. Now, you may have noticed that um, we've been banging on about the potential impacts of COVID-19 on this show in recent times. It's because we're trying to protect our mob, our culture from the virus. That is, um, and, and, and central to that culture is, of course, our elders. And our next guest um, explores the role of ours and how much we can learn, not only as an Aboriginal community, but as a broader community, if we just sit back and we listen to our elders. Mayor Adriz was um, part of a discussion that is published in the latest issue of uh, the Griffith Review. It explores how elders impact on our lives. Uh, Mayra is a Yilaray Gamilaray woman from uh, southwest Queensland, northwest New South Wales. Uh, Mayor is a practicing visual artist focused on installation, public art and mixed media work aimed at challenging viewer understandings of the cultural aesthetic interface. And she's also uh, an educator and she's on the line with us now. Mayra, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thanks, Daniel. Nice to be here. Very good to have you on and thank you for your time and sorry about the mix-up last week. Um, I hope you weren't sitting on the porch waiting for our phone call at um, 7am for too long. I wasn't. I wasn't too long. It's all good. <laughs> good. Uh, first of all, how are you and your friends and family holding up during this pandemic of ours? Managing quite well. My veggie garden hasn't been tended as well as it has yeah. as, as been since for years. I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's actually getting lots of love and care. Oh, fantastic. And yeah, it's it's doing doing the the best best. It actually. So. There's a silver lining to every cloud, isn't there? There yeah, always is. Now, um, in the discussion in uh, Griffith Review 68 that you have with uh, fellow educator Jay Phillips and, and elder Ruth Ross, you explore how institutions interact with uh, the Aboriginal community and you start the conversation by talking about the role of acknowledgement and welcome to, to country. Why start yeah. the conversation there? I suppose 
that that's probably a tangible place for all people to start. And, um, you know, we're, wherever you walk on um, country in Australia, you're walking on Aboriginal land or, or Torres Strait on the land. So, you know, acknowledging up to acknowledge what country you're on is, is really important. And I think that, you know, if you're in a situation where you're having meetings or you're having gatherings, you know, being able to know who's, whose land that you're sitting on is really important. Um, but it, um, further to that, if you're having something formal, you know, it's really important to be able to um, have those people in, invite those people in as guests and have them speak to be able to, able to formally recognise you and welcome you into that country. And that that's really important. Yeah, and the, the, the discussion goes from there. It goes from, well, if you're having an acknowledgement of country and you are inviting elders into your workplace, into your institutions, then why not incorporate their knowledge and wisdom um, further and actually incorporate it into the, into the way you do or conduct business with with not only Aboriginal people but with the broader community. Well, exactly right. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island perspectives have been really locked out of institutions and locked out of private businesses for um, hundreds of years, you know, um, because of government policies. And I think you know, slowly there's a little bit of a change with the younger generation coming through, people wanting to know and wanting to understand um, from Aboriginal and Torres Strait on the people, you know, what, well, what can I do? And, you know, there there is a time for a change. And the thing is, it's not a, it's not a matter of just bolting on something and, you know, getting... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to just add something to what they're already doing. It's a matter of sitting down and planning and working through what's already happening, you know, within the organisation and looking how the, how perspectives can actually be woven into the into the organisation. And a big part of that is also developing relationships and, you know, developing really strong and lasting relationships so that it's that it's asking the question of, you know, what what benefit is it for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people themselves? So it's not just a one sided um, benefit as well. Yeah, I think I think the double edged sword with, you know, welcome to country and, and acknowledgements of countries is that can at its worst, become just a, a tick-the-box exercise where you, you, you yeah. get an auntie or an uncle in and um, everyone has some morning tea with lemon myrtle and, and, you know, kangaroo and emu and stuff, and that ticks a box, whether it be for a reconciliation action plan or some other element of, of their business. What you're challenging and what um, uh, the other people that contribute to the to the article, uh, Jay and Ruth, are challenging is, well, don't let the, the, the conversation or the relationship stop there. Use that as an opportunity to incorporate um, elders and their wisdom and, and through them their community into institutions. I guess it's kind of like a, a microcosm of the, the, the Uluru statement in a way in terms of the way 
um, you know, organisations can engage with people by actually having them as part of their business through some mechanism or another. Definitely, and it, it, it's you know, like the Uluru State saying, it's around you know, true recognition, and it's about that you know that purposeful recognition and you know making it perfect purposeful and allowing people to um, be a part of something that that it's for a mutual benefit not just a one-sided benefit not just something that's tokenistic yeah I mean there's um, so much Unfortunately, there's so much tokenism around uh, at at the moment. What do you think would be, you know, how do we get to a point where, you know, organisations move past platitudes and start changing their attitudes? I think, again, I think another sort of double-edged sword around, you know, incorporating Aboriginal knowledge in organisations is is reconciliation action plans, RAPs, in, in terms of they pre- provide a, a, a device or a mechanism for, for people to actually engage with Aboriginal communities, organisations to engage with Aboriginal communities. But it become can become, uh, like I said before, a tick-the-box tick exercise. How do we overcome that? Well, I, I think I, I was involved a lot with the Reconciliation Action Plans where in my role with um, Reconciliation Queensland, I was on the board of Reconciliation Queensland. Yep. And the ones that actually lasted, I suppose, and weren't tick-the-box exercises, went into the level of relational, where with elders and with um, community people, people were, um, and the actions were, um, at that level of a relational level, it was actually about finding out um, what, like doing doing the work in terms of finding out what had happened in the past, changing the mindsets of the non-Indigenous people in in the organisation, as well as then also. Um, you know, because a lot of people still have blinkers up, not um, not understanding why why we need to do certain things, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so doing doing a lot of that hard work was was a, a big thing for those organisations, and then um, with that, actually, the actions having the actions of. Uh, working with elders um, closely in terms of what they were doing within the organisation and giving elders within the organisation and not not just a, um, a, a time when it was for a welcome to country, when it was a decision-making time, when it was sitting on a board or setting up an executive committee for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the actual, um, in the organisation that actually made real decision-making powers within the organisation that really had some substance. So yeah. that those organisations made a difference and they were long-lasting relationships and long-lasting decision-making within the wraps that you're talking about. 
There's, there's so many decisions that have been made over time by various organisations about, you know, about Aboriginal people, um, not with Aboriginal people. And, yeah, um, that's right. Decisions made, you know, without an Aboriginal person in the room. Um, and I guess that's that's what you're imploring organisations organisations to do is to is to tap into that wisdom because my 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 experience has been you know working in various facets of you know Aboriginal policy over time is that if the community doesn't own the project or doesn't own the initiative, then the initiative is doomed to fail. So you know what better way to get ownership than to actually you know invite people around the decision-making table. Exactly, exactly. And all start from from the community themselves and, you know, from their ideas and, you know, what what they actually think that they need and believe that, you know, what are the problems and what are the gaps and what are the solutions because, you know, for too long, as you said, you know, they've been told what to do and, mm. you know, they've been... Um, or what to do, or you know, commanded what to do. So, you know, start community is is the only way that's going going to work. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Mayor Drees, who was an educator, but um, also an artist. Now, before I let you go, are you working on any sort of installations at the moment, Mayor? I'm not working on an installation. I'm actually doing painting at the moment, doing okay. a, um, triptych and. It's about my country from my father's eyes, from his perspectives, actually. Oh, so okay. So, um, yeah, to lead in, leading to he passed away a few years ago, and so I'm actually doing it from his eyes and looking at um, certain places, that, sacred places that he he actually um, had affiliation with, and so I'm painting that at the moment. Oh wow, that um, that must be a very emotional experience. Yeah, it is. It is. It's very. It's cathartic, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I can hear. I can actually. I would imagine be quite healing at the same time. Where where can people go to check out some of your some of your work? Um, they could go to my Facebook. Yeah, that's the only place. So, um, it's under May J M A Y J A Y. M A Y J A Y J A Y Yeah, Mayj. All right. So just go to facebook.com forward slash Mayj. Um, Mayra, thank you so much for your time. Um, good luck with everything. Um, good luck getting through this crisis. Um, but again, um, thank you for your time. Uh, if you want to check out the the yarn that uh, Mara has with uh, Jay Phillips and Elder uh, Ruth Ross, you can find it in the Griffith Review 68. And it's um, a ripping read. It's a casual conversation, but it's an important one. Mara, thank you very much for your time again. Thanks, Daniel. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to 102.7 Triple R. Uh, my name is Daniel. This is an ep- this is an episode of the Mission Broadcasting from Radio City Docklands. Now to our um, second guest. A few weeks ago, um, we commemorated, as we do each year, Anzac Day. Um, it seemed to me that the added solemnity 
of this year's commemoration as a result of social social isolation was in some ways um, seemed more appropriate than usual. There was an absence of the the nationalism that has slowly been creeping in over the last 20 years or so. And and that lack of nationalism allows for stories which, uh, you know, are very rarely told or they are told but not really heard by 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 the mainstream, I guess. Uh, and so to doc- document, capture and promote those stories is one of the major functions of our next guest. Michael Bell is the Australian War Memorial's Indigenous Liaison Officer. He is a Nungawai Gomeroi um, man. He joined the uh, Memorial's military history section in 2015, having previously worked with several Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. During his time at the Memorial, Michael has played a key role in encouraging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to come forward with their stories, including myself, relating to Australian military history. And in doing so, he's built effective relationships between Indigenous communities and the Memorial. And he played a leading role in the curational team that developed the Four Country uh, National Exhibition and was an editor and contributor to uh, Four Country uh, for an illustrated history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander military service published by the War Memorial back in 2018. He's on the line with us now. Michael, welcome to the mission and thank you for your time. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me, Daniel. And that's just, uh, by the way, it's now uh, oh, in good. my father's country and pay respects to, uh, to those people, my Ngunnawal people and Gomeroi people. All right, the Ngunnawal people. All right, good. Um so I start off by asking this question to everyone. Michael, um, how are you and, and yours holding up during this time of COVID? Yeah, we're going really good. The isolation um, has been good. I've got three boys here and I've got 17, 13 and um, 11 and they're, they're handling it fairly well. And fortunately enough, we've got um, gifted some second-hand computers by an Aboriginal organisation I'm associated with, and that's helped us with um, uh, the schooling, homeschooling. So that's given them all workstations, and it's been a bonus for us. And I'd like to thank the generosity of NGS Corp New South Wales for providing that uh, facility uh, for my children, but it's made life so much easier for us to do the homeschooling. But also, it's but it's now it's the missing of the um, connection to our old people, and, you know, I want to see my yeah. uh, parents, and that's eased a little bit now, but... You know how it is. Mob likes to be together. Yeah. Um, is there a plan? We've got kids coming back to school here in Victoria. Back, um, uh, I think, uh, years prep one and year twelve on the May twenty sixth. Is there a, is there a plan for your kids, or are they at school at the moment? Yeah, at the moment, New South Wales uh, schools are um, coming back one day a week, different years, different days. So it's um, uh, going to be easing back in. But I think they're looking for a. Um, June 1, back to normal. Um, what we're believing to it, hopefully that is provided that the rate still, the, con- the contagious rate stays down of COVID so that if there's yeah. no major uptake again in, in a, or a second wave, I think things will start to get back to normal with still the, the um, social limited social restrictions still in place. Yeah. Um, now, I touched upon your role in, in, in the introduction, but it'd be good to hear it from you. Tell us about your role at the Australian War Memorial. Well, you, you, it's, um, those platitudes are very nice when you when I hear them, hear somebody talk about them. But no, <laughs> my role is, my priority role is to um, identify and recognise the contribution and service of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through peacetime and war. Um, and that takes in... Um, 
the whole gamut of service, you know, such as the ancillary roles that are, are often forgotten about that our people provided in um, in in the wartime efforts, such as the, the famous photo of uh, the um, ladies at the Cumbergundji Mission uh, knitting socks. That, that yes. effort is considered um, most important because that's contributing to the war effort. But people don't think, oh, they haven't got a a hat and a gun so that we don't want to know about them. We want to know about all of those efforts so that the contribution of our people, and what I'm trying to do is put the Indigenous face on the Anzac legend so that when we say, when people think about Anzac, we can say, yes, there are Aboriginal Anzacs there too. And we've got the proof, we've got the documents, we've got the photos, but now what I want to do is get the more in-depth stories from the people and talk about what we're finding more and more, Daniel, is that as... You, as I spoke to you today, our mob didn't go by themselves. They didn't sign mm. up with one. They took a cousin or a brother or a best mate that they grew up with. So you got two or three Aboriginal men enlisting. And when we find one, we generally find two or three. And most most likely they're in the same family. So we're trying to get and understand the depths and breadth of the service of our people. Yeah, I think, you know, we're becoming increasingly aware of the service of, of Aboriginal men and women in the military itself. But as you alluded to there, I've seen that photo of, um, you know, those socks being knitted on, on, on Cumbergunja. It There was a, a broader community effort behind each one of those Aboriginal soldiers that, that went to war. Is, is that what you're finding? Yeah, that's what we're looking for, is to understand that broader effort. And such was the the, the Victorians, especially a lot of the um, people that were um, on the mission stations and mission reserves were utilised to um, keep the rural industries going. You know, large large populations of the mission people were taken and moved around and transported around to harvest crops that weren't mm. being harvested because the men weren't there to do it. And people forget about that, and a lot of it, and unfortunately, some of it is unpaid and unrecognised, um, and we were utilised as a, a mobile workforce. But it's still producing for the country to allow our men to fight the front. And at the time when that was the most important thing, we need to put that, that imagery and the iconery of the Aboriginal people providing that same effort as the non-Indigenous brothers and sisters. In the trenches, we were treated equally, and in, in the uniforms, we were treated equally. But what we now have to do is stand up and be proud of the efforts of our community that, mm. without the uniforms, still provided those services and were vital, especially like up the Northern Territory. Everyone thinks about the coast watchers and yeah. the uh, traditional men using their skill to track down the downed pilots and bring them back safely. But people forget about that's also happened in Tasmania and in Victoria. You know, the, what Arnie Marge Tucker done, you know, one of the most famous uh, contributions of the Second World War is that she produced concerts and fundraising for the war effort. And her her um, concerts were legendary in, in the inner city of Melbourne at the time. And this is an Aboriginal woman contributing and, and providing um, this type of stuff. And she was working in the fact, munitions factory through the day. So that's what I try to get to, is that depth and breadth and, and desperately need more women's stories because our, yeah. our females and our aunties and our grandmas are very well underrepresented in our statistics at the War Memorial. And there are some, some beautiful pictures of, um, you know, Annie Marge Tucker floating about too during during that period. Um, what's What's been one of the sort of most amazing sort of factoids that you've come across in terms of, you know, the work you do exploring these issues? Uh, there, there are a lot, you know, 
to pay respects to our Torres Strait and Island brothers and sisters, they they were they formed what was what became known as the Torres Strait Island and Light Infantry Battalion, um, and they were formed to the only segregated battalion in ADF history or military history in Australia to defend the Torres Strait. But what's most important about that formation of that battalion is that 95% of eligible men from the islands enlisted. And the standard wow. rate of enlistment in the Second World War for non-Indigenous Australians or the broader Australia was about 19%. Wow. And nearly every man that was eligible had tried to enlist. And 95% enlistment rate is extraordinary. And it won't, I don't think it'll, it'll be matched in any other Commonwealth country without, without conscription. But that's one of the, the people that, one of the stories about the Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters that get, that get missed. And also, when we look at for the Victorians, everybody's aware of the Lovett family and their contribution of the five brothers in the two wars yep. and the much greater numbers now of the Lovett family. But when I look at the, the information around the states, there's a Lovett family in every state from Aboriginal families, and sometimes yeah. two or three families that have contributed five, six, seven brothers. And yeah, that, that's becoming more and more abundant. In, 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 a, in a time where, you know, we're talking particularly about the, the First and the Second World War now, in a time where, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't even recognised as, as, as citizens, what were some of the driving factors that led to that sort of high rate of enlistment? Well, I, what, what we find here in, in our research is 90% of it's probably the same as their non-Indigenous brothers and sisters, doing your patriotic duty, wanting to defend your country, going to be seen to do your bit, that the backbone of what we consider to be Australia is put country first. But for our Aboriginal uh, soldiers and our Aboriginal men to, to want to do this, we think it may be an opportunity to get away from under the protector because mm-hmm, we've been mm-hmm. under the yoke of the protector and he's governing our lives. It's our right... It's, it's our men trying to seek back a position and, and earn a proper wage that we were paid equally in the military. Um, but also, it's also that defence of country. And yes. we've been defending country here for over 60,000 years and it's given that opportunity back to us to um, provide those um, duties that we had been doing for a long time. I, um, I did some research um, on my great-great-grandfather, Percy Pepper, who served um, from 1916 to 1918 in, in, in what was then known as the Great War. Um, and it seemed to me that a driving factor for him to to enlist, and we've got to remember that World War One was um, a war in which every person, every serviceman that, that uh, served was voluntary, um, already all, already part of the armed forces before the war began. It seemed to me that one of the driving factors for him was a chance just to have an equal footing. Um, instead of being typecast as, you know, um, in inverted commas, uh, a half-cast and having to sing for his supper and, and go from job to job, that the military service actually offered him and and in in, term, in terms of being treated equally with his, with his fellow comrades. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and that's that's the stance, and it comes. It's most evidently reflected in the writings of the great William Cooper, another another Curry from Victoria. Everybody knows Uncle William. Yeah, we he, do. He was using um, 
the ADF membership and service as a pathway to citizenship. Um, mm. Unfortunately, that reflected when he lost his son Daniel, and it changed a bit in his writing. And he thought, well, what are, why are we fighting? And he couldn't see the ne- the need for to, to for our men and women to go and fight. He, he lost his, his son his, Daniel in the First World War, didn't he? In the First World War, yeah, yes, he was. Yeah. Um, he was he was killed in 1917. But, um, a lot of a lot of our men once once asked their question like Charles Menet, he writes in a letter back and he was asked about this and he said I go to fight for the right for my children to have access to a good education. Now this is a man who fought 26 years in four conflicts, and he went away to fight for the right for his children to have equal education. And different various arguments, and we can get those from the words of our men and women through the families or, or through their letters, and that's what we're trying to do is gather that information from first-hand sources, such as um, Charles Menet's letter or the writings of William Cooper that come are reflected in Daniel's letters and postcards that he sent back. An understanding of, like, Charles Blackman, who... It's about wanting to come home because the the thunder and lightning he's used to on the plains in Queensland are much different to what he was talking about, the thunder and lightning, which was the firing of the guns and the cannon. So it's it's a different it's a different um, reflection on each man, but the more research we do and the more connected we come to the families and descendants, the better chance are we getting their, those words from their soldiers. So when we get that, it's gold to us. Our pieces of gold are the words of the soldiers themselves and the passed down oral histories that we've been still passing down from generation to generation. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking with Michael Bell, the uh, Indigenous Liaison Officer with the Australian War Memorial. And I know in the correspondence that we've had, um, uh, Michael, whenever I send you an email um, about something or other, you're always asking me, yeah, do you know of any other family members of yours that that served? I'd like to know about them. Um, that's that's the best way to, to to trace some of these histories, isn't it? Is every Aboriginal person that has someone that served in Vietnam, like my dad did and and uh, his cousins did, is to just try and trace down that history, you know, directly via word of mouth. Yeah, that's what I find most effective, and we give to get because we'd like to make sure that when we talk about a soldier, we can say, oh, but he went with his brother or his cousin. And the family commitment was this many. But it also reflects like you've got your your dad is a descendant of Percy Pepper. So yep. no doubt there's going to be Second World War and Korean War service in your family as well. Because yeah. once we've got what we're looking at, we're saying now is that service is is a, is the pathway to um, to citizenship. But it's also looking at um, the new tradition. Service is the new tradition is what we say. And we find... For you, for instance, I've got now in your family a Vietnam veteran and a First World War veteran, and there's yeah. some gaps in there, which is the Second World War, no doubt. When I look at your ancestry or when you tell me, oh, yeah, actually my great-uncle went to the Second World War, then we can put him at Kokoda or we can put him as a rat at Brook or whatever his service was. It doesn't matter to me if he only stayed in Australia and cleaned the, the, the depot, he still, he still served his country. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, I'd love to have you back, Michael, and, and and talk about these things a whole lot more. But the Australian War Memorial has been doing some great work in terms of taking all of their, you know, exhibitions and um, other libraries online. So if you want to visit that, you can just go to awm.gov.au. 
Um, Michael, I'll, I'll let you go, but um, I love, like I said, I'd love to have you back on some other time. I think we could probably could probably talk a whole show about some of the things that you do and some of the histories that you cover in your everyday everyday work. So, so thank you. Not a problem, Daniel. And thank you for the opportunity. And as I say, my most important resource are the community. And without the community, I've got no names and no new stories. I'm always looking for new names, which gives me new stories. And once we shake them trees out there, we're going to be more soldiers fall out than we think. <laughs> exactly. Michael, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you, Daniel. Cheers. Well, that's it for another episode of The Mission. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you're looking after yourselves. Like I said, restrictions now end in about four hours. Uh, please maintain your hygiene standards. Wash your hands. Get a good lather up. Don't touch your face. It's really important for the most vulnerable people in our community that you do that. And, of course, for yourself. Thank you for your time, and um, I'll speak to you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>